On today's episode of the Connecticut Scoreboard Podcast, we're joined by Sacred Heart men's basketball coach, Anthony Latino. We talk about growing up in Hartford in the high school basketball scene at the time, his career path and the job he's done so far at Sacred Heart, we'll preview this year's team, and talk about some of the NCAA's hot-button issues, including transfers. Before I get to my interview with Anthony Latina, I wanted to talk about a new component of the podcast. We all know Connecticut is a college basketball state. I'll be putting on a weekly college basketball pick'em contest where you can try and pick the winners of every game being played by Connecticut college basketball teams. Each week's winner will get a shout-out on the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Twitter, at CTScoreboardPod, to get each week's entry form. And now for my interview with Sacred Heart men's basketball coach, Anthony Latina. You grew up here in Connecticut. Talk a bit about your basketball Mm -hmm. journey and how you got from high school basketball at South Catholic High School to the head coach at Sacred Heart University. Well, I I grew up in the South end of Hartford, which uh, was a awesome, awesome place to grow up Um, with a lot of, you know, great people. Great mentors, a lot of people looking out for me. It was, uh, it was, you know, really just. I feel very, very blessed and fortunate to, to, to have grown up in, in such a great neighborhood with so many, so many people that that really kind of took me under their wing and, and showed me, you know, what it was, you know, how, how to be a good person and how to how to kind of figure things out and also, you know, and also uh, taught me the love of basketball. You know, it started, you know, at South End Park, you know, right off Franklin Avenue. And it was a great, it was a great place to, to, to grow up. And, and so, um, you know, from there, you know, I, I was, I was a Catholic school kid. I went to St. Augustine's school, which has actually since closed down a great place. And, um, from there I, I went to uh, South Catholic high school and, you know, I developed love, you know, growing up in the South, the basketball in the South end. And, you know, it, it actually started as an interesting story is, when I was in fifth grade, my um, my my sister, who was a senior in high school when I was in the fifth grade, brought me to a South Catholic high school basketball game, and they were you know the one or two ranked team in the state. The coach was a, a gentleman by the name of Joe Riley, and Joe uh, was a legendary coach, and and they played Wilbur Cross High School in New Haven, and um, I think Wilbur Cross might have been number one in the state, and South Catholic was number three in the state, and we lived right next to South Catholic High School. We walked to the game and. South Catholic won by two, beat the number one team state. They rushed the court. I remember walking home in fifth grade and telling my uh, my sister, who was a senior, I said, I said, I'm going to play at South Catholic one day. And so really for a long time, my my dream in life was to play basketball at South Catholic. And obviously I went to every game the rest of the year. They got beaten in the state championship game that year by Charles Smith and Warren Harding. And I just instantly became a South Catholic basketball historian and I, everything about it. And I went to Coach Riley's basketball camp, I think, uh, by the seventh grade, um, and uh, you know, obviously loved everything about him and and his program. And, and when I got to South Catholic, it was everything that I hoped it would be and thought it would be, and more. You know, it really, uh, I would say, Coach Riley probably shaped my life as much as anybody. You know, along with my mom and dad, and you know, I would say right there is Coach Riley in terms of you know knowing. Uh, just showing me how to how to act and, and you know what what a what a champion looks like and what what being you know committed looks like and um, being part of the team. We are fortunate enough to uh, win a state championship uh, our senior in 1991, and you know the the, the players on that team 
are still my closest friends to this day. Uh, obviously, I played with uh, with Luke Riley, who's um, who was you know you know godfather to my son, and, and who's uh, was the best man at my wedding. And um, you know we obviously we're, we're lifelong friends. He's the head coach of East Catholic now, and and Joe Riley, um, uh, Coach Riley's other son, who was uh, he was uh, a senior when Luke and I were in eighth grade. You know he kind of became kind of a mentor to to. to to me and our team. And, and he's a dear friend who was in my wedding as well. And, and uh, I'm godfather to his youngest son. So uh, I was very blessed to grow up where I did with great people in the South and the Hartford, you know, uh, from, from basically that fourth grade on to the South Bend with, with my mentors, like, you know, in the South Bend Park and with Bobby Abate and great people like that. And then I was fortunate to go to St. Augustine's where, you know, we played our games at South Catholic and playing at St. Augustine was a great thrill, but then going to South Catholic was, was the ultimate. Matter of fact, it was interesting. I, I kind of had to figure out what do I do next? My, my whole goal in life was to play basketball at South Catholic. Once that happened, I said, what's, what else is there to do? You know, that, that was kind of my world. And uh, I was fortunate enough to play well enough to have some interest from schools and, you know, Coach Riley kind of guiding me a little bit. And I went to Brandeis University in Waltham and, uh, which was a great school, great place, and played there for four years. I was a two-year captain and kind of fell in love with um, with, with the game even more. And, and, and it was a, a great education. I felt like I got a first-class education there. And I actually, you know, when I went to college, my plan was to be a teacher and a coach because obviously Coach Riley was someone I really looked up to. You know, Bobby Bate, who, I, you know, who was a teacher at Harvard High, was one of my first mentors at, at South End Park. He was a, my first coach at, for for park and Rex, which was a big deal back then. And, and I said, Hey, I think teaching and coaching is pretty cool life. And that was my plan. And senior year, uh, in college, I went to a, uh, an all-star game and actually I, I wasn't even playing in the game. It was my roommate, uh, or one of my roommates was playing the game we went to go watch it. And we were leaving and there was a, an assistant coach who wasn't, you know, wasn't acquainted, not a good friend said, Hey, uh, what are you doing next year? And I said, you know, I'm, I was finishing up my, teacher certification and uh, Brandeis' program, and he says, hey, we, we might have an opening for a graduate assistant at UMass Lowell. I said, oh, really interesting. He says, you know, Wayne, love for you to come and meet with, 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 you know, our head coach. So I literally met with the head coach like two days later. We hit it off. He offered me the job maybe two days after that, and that was the start of my college coaching career at UMass Lowell. It's a great story, and I, I think you hit on everything from the brotherhoods of uh, basketball to then using those connections to, to get on to UMass <laughs> Lowell. So when you get to Sacred Heart, you, you start as an assistant there. What was it like taking over the program and, and following in the footsteps of a coach uh, you had worked alongside for some time? Well, you know, the interesting thing was, I, again, I, I've been I, – I can't stress, you know, how blessed I've been. You know, at, at Lowell, I worked for a great coach great person so I really felt like I learned from you know terrific guy I went there actually I was a graduate assistant the first year it went great and the full-time coach left and he actually my second year at Lowell I was a full-time coach and a full-time student finishing up my master's which was an interesting year but I loved it I mean I was I was either doing schoolwork in class scouting or on the court basically you know 18 hours a day (laughs) you know that was you know you try to get a little sleep when you could 
Um, so then I was fortunate enough to, to work at Central Connecticut. I got a job at Central Connecticut. But just to continue with the actual story, because this is kind of interesting, you know, one of the main reasons um, that I got the job at Central Connecticut was, uh, again, like Joe Riley, who was, uh, he was an assistant at Yale at the time. Um, or actually he might've been the head coach at Bates at this point. He was good friends with Steve Peichel and they had an opening and Joe said, Hey, Joe told Steve that, Hey, I think Anthony would be great. Why don't you interview? And Steve got me an interview with coach Dickman. And I had actually met coach Dickman four years earlier at the advice of Joe to meet with him. And, and when I met with coach Dickman four years later, so I, I met with coach Dickman right out of, out of college just to, you know, say hello. And, and coach was nice enough to meet with me. And, and I went in a suit, like it was an interview, but it was just kind of a chance to meet with him. And four years later when they had an opening and I had some experience and he interviewed me for real, he had seen the growth and I wouldn't have, ne- I would have never gotten that interview had it not been for, for, uh, for Joe Riley, who's now the head coach at Wesleyan. And, and so, so, you know, again, there, there, you know, there's a little bit of a break there. I, I get hired at central Connecticut. We have a great six year run and that's when I, had an opportunity to go to Sacred Heart, something different. You know, I had been six great years for a great, you know, one of the all-time great coaches in Connecticut history, and Coach Dickman, and now I had another chance to work for another legend in Coach Bike, and Sacred Heart had struggled a little bit, and I, I was excited about that challenge to try to help them because Coach Bike was, you know, a dominant coach in Division Two, and they made that transition to Division One, and I still think they were trying to figure out the way to navigate it, and I had a decent amount of Division One experience at Central Connecticut, and when I got to Sacred Heart, I mean, obviously I had such good training with Coach D, and, but Coach Bike and Coach D are two legendary coaches, but they're very different uh, in their approach. So it was great to just see another way to, to do things. And, you know, one of the things I learned from both coaches is there's a lot of different ways to be successful. The best way to do it is by being true to yourself and being authentic. And that's what made Coach Dickman and Coach Bike so great is they were both so true to their personalities and who they were. They didn't try to be something they weren't. And I learned that from them, I mean, just vividly. And, and I said, Geez, I got to be myself. If I try to be, you know, as an assistant, you know, your job is to make the head coach look good and do the best you can. But when I took over as a head coach, you know, that lesson really stuck with me. It's like, if I try to be Coach Bike or Coach D, I'm going to fail miserably. I have to try to be the best version of myself and be true to myself. And then – maybe I'll have a chance to be successful because it's super competitive. I mean, every coach that gets to this point uh, get here for a reason because they've done a good job and they're good coaches. So, you know, you could do a good job and not always get the results you want. So, you know, that, that was, it, it was a, it was a great transition. Um, an interesting story is, is this is, so my first year uh, we made good progress at Sacred Heart. The second year, we got to the conference championship game. So we were one game away. We lose to Central Connecticut. Actually, a lot of the players that I coached beat us in the finals. And that year, Tom Moore, um, who's a close friend, great friend, who I owe a big part of my career to, you know, along with Coach D and Coach Bike uh, and Joe Riley and Steve Peichel, you know, Tom Moore offered me a job at Quinnipiac. And the people at Sacred Heart were very pleased with the direction of the program and didn't want me to leave. So after that second year, they had promised me um, the head coaching job when coach retired. At that point, he had been coaching for 30, maybe 29, 30 years at that point or something like that. And so it was, you know, kind of understood that when coach retires, I would take over. And part of that was because 
couldn't be like offering me a job. They didn't want me to go. And, and it was, it was obviously a, a, an opportunity that was too good to say, you know, no to. I, I was really enjoying my niche at Sacred Heart, although I would have loved to work for Tom Moore at Quinnipiac. Um, you know, Sacred Heart made basically an offer that was so good that I, I just had to stay, and it was great, and I don't regret it. And, you know, coach coach for another four or five years after that, and then I took over for him. So that's kind of how, how we are here to today. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm curious to, to know a little bit more about what was it like knowing that the position would be yours once Coach Bike decided to step down, you know, we saw it, you know, Mike Hopkins over at Syracuse has supposedly been Jim Beheim's replacement. And it's, you know, what was it? Two years ago, I think he, he decided just to go to Washington. And he kind of had enough waiting. Was it tough on you to know that it was you know, yours at some that's point? A, that's, a, that's a great, that's a great question. And I'll tell you why it wasn't tough. There's, there's a few, few reasons why one um, from a compensation standpoint, I thought they were very fair with me mm-hmm. as far as money. So money was not a major, not that we were rolling in, but my wife and I were fairly comfortable as far as what I was used to living on. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was, it was, it was probably more, you know, uh, you know, it, so we were, so that wasn't a major issue. You know, money wasn't a major issue. Obviously everyone wants to make more money, but we were comfortable in, 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 in where we were. Also the second and probably most important is coach bike is so easy to work for and just, really trust his assistant so much that I never was ever felt frustrated working for him ever. He just gave you so much uh, ownership of the program and what you did. So, you know, I actually credit coach bike and his, his approach where it really made it like, I mean, you know, it was, it was almost, I felt so fortunate to be in a position I was to be working for the people I was working for at a great place for one of the, one of just you know, Coach Bike. Not only is a great coach, he's he's probably one of the best human beings you're ever going to meet. You know, actually, it's funny. And I, I oh, I was talking to a uh, a reporter. I don't remember who it was. It was with the Connecticut Post when I first got the job because obviously I went from Central to Sacred Heart, so that was a little bit odd. And so they were you know asking me questions, and and I I said a quote. I said you know I have a chance to work for a, a different coach. Um, and in my experience with Coach Bike, he's, he's you know, one of the best people in coaching that I've ever met. And the reporter, I think it was Bob Ehall. I think it was Bob, but it could be wrong. Because right? the name escapes me. It actually was not Bob. It was, it was another Connecticut Post reporter. I, I got to look at the article. But, and he corrected me. He says, no, no, no. He's one of the best people there is, period. And that was really, really stuck with me. And it was like, you know, I'm looking for just such a, just such a great guy in so many ways in terms of his generosity with his time and, and, and with just all those kind of things. So that really, really made it easy for me. I, you know, knowing that, you know, you're working for a great person and, and my quality of life was not that of a normal assistant. It was not, it, it was, you know, listen, don't get me wrong. If you want to take over, but, but he made it very, very easy for me to not be anxious or, you know, kind of get antsy at all. And I give Coach Bike all the credit in the world. I mean, he made it very easy for me to feel comfortable in my role. And and so so that's why I never, you know, one of the things that I feel good about with the whole transition is Coach went out on his terms, and that's the way I wanted it because he was so good to me. You know, he kind of re-energized me uh, when I got the job at Sacred Heart. It was just something different, something new. And and um, so I, I feel good about how that happened, and I think he did too. So, And that was very important to me because he was such – 
such a good mentor to, for me and to me um, that, you know, I, 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 I hope that he feels the same way, which I think he does because we're still great friends to this day. Yeah. So you finally get the job now. From when you've started to today, how would you say the program has grown uh, in that time? Well, I think, I think what we would say is this. It's grown. First of all, our university has grown just in the last five years at an incredible rate. And I think our program has mirrored that in terms of the commitment to the program uh, financially, in terms of positions, in terms of resources, in terms of staffing has really, really grown. Now, you know, our first year was a little rebuild year. We made some good progress in year two and three. And, you know, one of the things that our program really did, we, we were very fortunate. We recruited some very good players, some local kids who really were good at a young age. And what I think set us back a little bit, not a little bit, a lot is, uh, and it's a, it's a phenomenon that's happening in college basketball, is we lost two great players. I mean, based arguably two best players in the league in back-to-back years to transferring to a higher level. So that kind of set us back a little bit, and I think caught you know, certainly us a little off guard. Um, and, and I think it set us back a year. But in terms of where the program is culturally, where the program is staffing-wise, where is resources-wise, our commitment to excellence has is, is, is never been higher. And I think that uh, you know, we're really poised to really turn this thing around. I thought we were close. No, I thought we were very close. Um, obviously, losing the player of the year as a sophomore, and then losing a first-team all-league, another sophomore the following year. You know, those are guys that should have been on the, would have been on our roster last year, which I think would have put us in position to certainly be the best team in the league. Uh, but it didn't happen. You learn from that. You make adjustments. You, you know, and and uh, and I do think I think it was it was a learning experience. You know, sometimes you'd rather not learn by taking losses, but we did. Uh, and you know, I think we're better prepared to to handle that now, to absorb that situation where, you know, it was something that, you know, in my 20 plus years of coaching, I had dealt with as an assistant or a head coach. So, um, you know, it, it, it was, you know, we, we certainly supported the guys that, that left because that was what they thought was best for them. But, you know, if you look at it objectively, it, it did set us back a year or so. So, you know, we're going to be a very young team this year because of those transferring, those transfers. But uh, I, we think we've recruited well. We think we've recruited the right type of kid, the right character kids. And uh, hopefully, um, you know, we're back uh, on track to where we belong this, this year and going forward. So starting to talk about this season a bit, something that's always been of interest to me is, is scheduling. How do you go about setting up your schedule? I know you guys open with Holy Cross this year. What goes into your schedule making process? Well, I think, you know, there's a couple things at our level. One is finances are a factor. All right. There's a certain amount of money that we have the ability to to generate by playing certain games. So you're going to play your three or four high major programs because it produces revenue for your program. So I, I don't know if you would know this or if your audience would, would know this, but there's something called guarantee games. Yeah. So you go play with We play Seton Hall, St. John's and Boston College. Well, they will pay our program to go to those games because home court advantage is such a major advantage in college basketball and they want home games. And so they'll pay schools like Sacred Heart to go play there. So we play those games for two reasons. One, it generates revenue for our program and the athletic department. And two is it's, it challenges our guys in, in certain games. We hope to be in the NCAA tournament and play a team like a St. John's or a Seton Hall there. So, so it kind of has a twofold uh, purpose there. 
So obviously you get those three or four games out of the way uh, for, for, for those reasons. And then, then you, what we try to do is we try to get some teams that are uh, competitive teams that are, that are like-minded institutions academically that, you know, that we are comparable to, like a Holy Cross, you know, like a Lafayette, you know, schools that we think, you know, academically we kind of compare favorably with. And, and uh, you know, and, and so we try to play schools like that in, in leagues similar to the Northeast Conference. Like, you know, like I said, like a Holy Cross, like a Lafayette, like, a, you know, we played Yale in the past or, or like a University of Hartford and schools like that. And, you know, you, you try to, it's like a puzzle. You try to put it together where you're, you're playing a competitive schedule that gets you ready for league play and, you know, gives, creates a, a really positive experience for our guys. And, and that's kind of how you put it together. What importance do you get out of playing in some of these early season tournaments? I know you guys played in one at Mohegan Sun last year. You're in Rhode Island this year. What, what does that do for a team early on in the season? Well, a couple things. One is most of those tournaments are – either two games in two days or three games in three days, which has a little bit of a tournament-style feel, hopefully, NCAA tournament. You know, the NEC tournament has a little bit of a gap between games. but So you, you get that situation where you have to prepare on a very short notice. Uh, so that's good. You're playing an in-season tournament, so in, in theory you can win a win an in-season tournament. I think that's a, something that's a confidence booster if you can do that. Um, and, and I think it's, it's, about, it's a positive experience. You know, one of the things we're trying to do is really – create positive experience for our student athletes so that, you know, an educational, a positive educational experience. And, and part of that is playing a, a, a wide variety of, of teams and games. And sometimes that requires playing a tournament or traveling to Vegas or to uh, Cancun we travel to and, you know, or, and, and so that's part of our mission is, is, is to create the most positive experience possible because we want these guys to come back years from now and, give back to the program and mentor our guys and really create, you know, um, an environment that we think is going to help them develop as people and, and as athletes and, and things that they can take with them, you know, long after their basketball career is over at Sacred Heart. So, so those tournaments are exciting. They're fun. Usually it's, it's, you know, the location is, 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 is usually something that's kind of, that's attractive. And so whenever we find a situation where we think we can give our guys a trip or a unique experience, you know, we, we certainly explore that. And I'll, I'll get you on, a, on the scheduling and, and that type of question here. We've seen of late extreme parity in college basketball. I, I think probably most evident with uh, UMBC beating Virginia last year in the NCAA tournament. From your experience, do you do you see that as a as a new trend where really anyone can beat anyone on any given day? Without question. Well, especially, you know, it's interesting because of the one and done rule. A lot of the top programs don't get to have juniors and seniors. So if you can keep your guys, which obviously we we have not been able to have top guys, which we have lost in the last few years, which us back. But if we were able to keep those guys. Now we have 22, 23-year-old guys, men, playing against 18-year-old players, albeit at a higher level, maybe better player. But, yeah, that, that's a great equalizer, you know, because the top schools, they're losing their best 18. They, they don't get too many guys to get to 23, 24. Now if you have an older group, you know, and, 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 and you're, you know, you're a veteran team, that, that does level the playing field a ton. 
So without question, I, I think the parity has happened more now than say 20 years ago, because 20 years ago, you had players like Patrick Ewing and Michael Jordan that stayed for four, three and four years. You know what I mean? Now, I mean, Michael Jordan and Patrick Ewing would never play a passer first. Michael, Patrick Ewing played four years of basketball at Georgetown. I mean, he was probably the best player in the country as a freshman. <laughs> you know what I mean? If you're as good as Patrick Ewing now, you never get to your sophomore year. So a dynasty like a Georgetown or a Carolina, um, they're, you know, they're not as, they're still dominant teams, but they're not as dominant because those guys are long gone. So I think that has created some parity, more parity now than say maybe 25 years ago, where, where UMBC, um, obviously they won, which is a great upset, but you even see lower seats just being a lot more competitive in these NCAA tournament mm-hmm. games than they might've been years ago. Absolutely. And now to talk a bit about this season, I know you talked, uh, you lost some players, have uh, a, a new group uh, with a lot of younger players coming in. What what can fans expect to see this year at a, at a Sacred Heart? Well, I think we did a good job of recruiting. You know, probably five of our top eight or nine players didn't play for us last year, four freshmen and a transfer. So we're going to be a lot of new faces. I think we are more athletic and dynamic of a team. Uh, I think we will make a lot of mistakes because we're young, uh, but we do have some good veteran leadership in Sean Holmes, senior, uh, senior captain who's, who's a terrific leader. Uh, so I think hopefully he will help in the development of these young guys. But these young guys are good. They can play. Um, and I think you know, we'll have moments where you know, we'll have cringeworthy moments, but I think we'll have moments where you know people that watch us will say, wow, these, these got some good young players. So uh, we have to be patient with these guys. We have to have the long view. We can't panic if we lose some games early. Um, and we have to just make sure that we're getting better every day and, and be ready for when we get in the league play. Absolutely. And, and now on to league play uh, a little bit. And, and I think one issue we've seen discussed a lot uh, at the non-Power 5 schools is the issue of a team winning the regular season, then say losing in the semis of their conference tournament and then not making the tournament. Do you like that setup the way as it is, or would you like to change it? So that there, there's a little more uh, something, you know, meaning behind winning your regular season. Well, I think he, one of the things that you did a few years back, and I don't know if it's three or four years ago, but the regular season champ does get an automatic bid to the NIT which I think is a great idea, a great idea. And one of the things that I think our league does a very good job of is their regular season champs, we play all our tournament games at home site. So if you're the one seed, you're playing three home games to get to the NCAA tournament, which I think is, and we reseed every round. So in theory, the, the highest seed is playing the lowest seed every round at home. So I do think the regular season is important needs to be important. I think our league does a very good job of giving it a great deal of importance by giving the one seed an overwhelming advantage. Um, but I think what makes college basketball great is the fact that everybody has a chance come tournament time, come conference tournament time. So I don't think you can take that element out. Is it the most fair process? Probably not. Probably the regular season is a better indicator of who the best team is. But I think one of the, one of the great appeals to college basketball is that excitement of anybody could beat anybody, that excitement of one and done. Uh, and I think to take that away, I think would hurt the game. So um, I do love that the NCAA tournament um, 
did reward the regular season uh, champion with the NIT berth, which is still a wonderful tournament, a first-class tournament. Obviously, it's not the NCAA tournament, but it's a great tournament. So I think that's great. And I think our league particularly does a great job of giving our one seed the best chance to win, which I think is fair and correct. Uh, because when you do have the best regular season, you should have all the built-in advantages to win. Uh, but I think the way the way it is right now is, is again, we're not saying it's the most fair way, but it's the best for college basketball, without question, in terms of interest and excitement. Currently, the way the NEC is set up, you play everyone home and, uh, home and away uh, during conference uh, play, but you're going to have an addition to the conference in Merrimack soon. Have you given any thought to how you'd like to see that schedule play out? Because if you still play everyone in a like a double round robin format, you're probably going to lose a non-conference game, which could be a guarantee game, which seems to be uh, mm-hmm. important for the school. Have, have you thought of how you'd like to see that schedule play out? 100%. The league is in, in the process of of meeting and, and, and figuring out the athletic directors and the commissioner and um, – you know, the big decision is do you go to, to 20 and do the double round robin or you go to 18. Um, my guess is 18 is going to be the number, which I think does make sense. Uh, although 20 makes sense as well, but 18, I think, still gives, uh, I think what's going to end up having to 18 still gives the schools the flexibility to have enough non-conference games where you're, you're playing your games to create revenue, to put, you know, to look good on your schedule, but you're still playing enough 50-50 games, teams at your level, uh, to kind of build your resume to get the highest seed you can get in the NCAA tournament. So um, that is going to be decided very soon. Um, uh, I think there is merit to both arguments. Uh, I would have no problem with either one. Uh, I think it's going to go 18, um, which is okay. It's not a, We're not the only conference in the country uh, that doesn't play a double round robin. I mean, the Big Ten does not. Uh, most of the conference conferences that have more than 10 teams do not play a double round robin. So I think, um, yeah, I, I don't think it's a major factor for us, um, but I do think it's going to end up, I, I think ultimately it'll end up at 18 and then you just play two teams once. And, you know, sometimes you're going to, you know, catch a break and play the right, the right two teams only once. But, uh, you know, I, I think, I think if it's done in a fair way, it's, it, it's, 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 I think it'll, it'll, it'll all work itself out. I think. So I'll get you out of here on a couple quick hitter questions. Is there one player that you've gone up against uh, as a coach that you've either scouted for or just that you've seen in the course of a game that, that's probably been the best player or, or has stuck out the most to you? The player that has probably stuck out the most, and we've played some good ones. I mean, obviously we've played uh, Lori Marketing at Arizona, who was Unbelievable talent. We've played against uh, Emeka Okafor and Ben Gordon, who were just phenomenal. I would say, though, it's crazy. Probably the player that was most difficult to guard for us, who we had zero answer for and had an effortless 30, was C.J. McCollum when he was at Lehigh. Um, He was just uh, phenomenal. I mean, there was no answer for him. He scored at will. When we double-teamed him, he got assists. Um, so he was a guy, you know, and we've seen some great ones. And obviously the ones I mentioned before, CJ, were phenomenal. But I, I, I don't know if he's ever played a talent. You know, certainly he, he came to our place. He was at Sacred Heart. And, and the things that he did were, were just, it was just another level. We had a great player, Shane Gibson, who was a 2,000-point scorer for us. And 
CJ was at just such a high level. It, it was, uh, it's not a shock that he's a very good player, which is interesting. You know, CJ uh, McCollum, you know, he, he's a guy who, who, who stayed at Lehigh, which I think is another debate, you know, which, which I would love to talk to you about another podcast someday uh, in terms of uh, guys that don't transfer that stay at their school. And, uh, it worked out pretty good for him, staying at Lehigh. <laughs> if you want to take a minute or two, uh, I had this stat that 40% of D1 players, uh, according to the NCAA, leave their first school by the end of the sophomore year. So it seems like, just from, from how we've gone back and forth today, um, there's been some debate on whether or not there's a transfer epidemic or issue in college basketball. Would you agree that there is one? Well, there's certainly an issue. Um, you know, is it a negative issue? You know, I it's tough because it's such a it's such a complex topic because some kids that leave it's probably in their best interest to leave they're going somewhere where they need more of an opportunity so not all transferring is equal I do think so I, I you know it's it's a I do think some kids bail out quickly because it gets a little tough and they and, and they they don't want to stay so that that's you like to see kids do that because they think you know you know you should, a different sport. He's a guy like Tom Brady. Here's a guy who's the greatest quarterback, arguably one of the greatest quarterbacks of all time. You know, he was not a full-time starter for one year, not even one year at Michigan. You know, and he got replaced, and you know, he didn't play much as a freshman, sophomore. And so, I do think there's a value in sticking things out. With that said, I think that's not always the best situation. I just think it has swung the pendulum has swung too much to, well, I don't like how it's working out. Let me leave, or it's not going exactly how I want to go. Let me leave. I think that is what we got to guard against. But the transferring has always happened. It's a little more visible now because of social media. And it's also a little more visible because kids are transferring up now. That's a newer phenomenon. You know, kids would always transfer down from a high major to a mid-major, low major. But now low major kids are transferring up. And the only argument I would make is, and I've tried to make this argument, is I think low major kids that are great players at at their schools and in their conferences, if they have professional basketball aspirations, statistics, I mean, it's, it's indisputable. Staying at your school gives you the best chance to stay. I, I cannot give you one example of a player that transferred from a one-bit league, uh, like the Northeast Conference or the American East or the Patriots, the one-bit MAC, one-bit league to, to a, a Power 5, you know, including the Big East, so Power 6, say, basketball, that has gotten drafted in the first round. But I can give you plenty of examples of players that have stayed at their one bid league school, conference and school, that have gotten drafted. C.J. McCollum, perfect example. Steph Curry at Davidson. When, when Steph Curry was at Davidson, Davidson was in the Southern Conference, a one bid league. Stayed there. Um, you know, Kenny Fareed, Moorhead State. Um, boy, oh boy, I'm, I'm, I'm drawing. I mean, there is, there's probably 15 to 17 players that you – know, Damian Lillard. State at Weaver State, one bit of league, you know. But I can't give you one example, and there might be one. But the overwhelming the guys that stay, their chances of playing the NBA increase increase exponentially. So now, with that said, that doesn't mean everyone should stay. But but what the data shows is staying gives you the best chance, just by the sheer, you know, just the people, you know, you can think of. And, and I'm a college basketball fan. I'm you know sure you're a college basketball fan. I can't think of one player that transferred from a one big lead to a power five in the big East that has, that has gotten drafted in the first round. And so I think that's something that, you know, we really should educate people on. If, if, if playing at the highest level of professional basketball is your goal, 
staying gives you the best chance. And um, so I hopefully, you know, hopefully we're fortunate enough to have players that have that option, but they want to play professionally at the highest level and decide to stay. And, and I really believe that. And, and just a few examples I gave you. And, and again, if someone can give me an example of someone who transferred up and was a first round pick, I can't think of one. <laughs> but I give you plenty of guys that didn't, that didn't, that are doing pretty good, making a lot of money. And I think at the end of the day, that's what we all, for all our guys, it, we want them to be in a situation where they can create a better life for themselves, whether that's basketball or whatever, whether, whether, you know, creating an income that, that they can support themselves and their families. And, and I think staying is, is certainly um, the best bet when it comes to, you know, professional basketball aspirations. Absolutely. So I'll get you out of the, out on this one, Coach, you work for probably one of the most well-known athletic directors in all of college sports. What's it like working for Bobby Valentine? <laughs> you know, Bobby has been a great mentor for me. Um, the, the thing that, that I really appreciate about Bobby is he has been, um, obviously he has managed, coached at the highest level of sports. And he's won at the highest level and he's lost. So he understands the psychology, the kind of the, the psychological warfare that coaches go through mentally during the season. So he understands when we're winning five in a row and we're still on pins and needles. Cause like, Hey, we might not get hot like this again. And he understands when you lose five in a row and you feel like, Oh my God, are we ever going to win a game again? So he's just a great resource for me to lean on um, in that because he's lived it. He's lived it. He's been to the world series. He's been, you know, what I would say unfairly treated at times <laughs> in his profession. So he understands that. And that's, that's a great thing for an administrator to have is, is that practical knowledge of what coaches go through, because unless you've coached, it, it is hard to really understand, you know, how you feel mentally. And, and, and it is a mental grind. So I really appreciate that about him. He, he's just a great person to lean on. He's a, he's a terrific person. He's a, you know, I, I would I would call him blue collar. He's he's a regular blue collar guy who just happens to be real bright and real good at things. And uh, when you have someone like that, you know, it, it's it's invaluable. So, you know, he, he he's been great for for me personally and professionally. He's been great for our university. He's raised the profile of our university, and uh, we're lucky. We're very fortunate to have him, and uh, and we're thankful to have him. And and uh, and I hope he decides to stay for for many many years. Awesome. So Coach Latina, thanks so much for uh, joining us on the podcast today. Uh, really appreciate the time and best of luck this season. Terrific. My pleasure. Thank you.